This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Prue Clark. October 2021 may go down as a turning point in Facebook's 18-year history. Its myriad critics hope it will mark the beginning of the end of Facebook as we know it. 20 media outlets in the US and Europe now have access to the leaked documents known as the Facebook Papers, yielding dozens of revelations a day about how leaders knew about disinformation, incitement and illegal acts on its platforms and did nothing to stop them. At the same time, they cowed to the demands of repressive regimes. The leaks themselves have been a big part of the story orchestrated by former Facebook employee Francis Haugen. Just as Haugen hoped, the leaks have pushed the US Congress closer than ever to tough regulation of the industry. To discuss the repercussions of any regulation for Australian media, we'll be joined a little later by lecturer in law and media, Sasha Molitoris. But first, a chronicler of the Facebook leaks in the US, New York Times media columnist Ben Smith. Welcome back to the show, Ben. Thank you for having me. So for an audience that's not in the US and really steeped in what's going on there at the moment, can you give us a, a sense of just how big this Facebook story is there? Well, I mean, it's a, it depends how you measure. It's a big story. Lots of journalists have been writing many, many things about it. I wouldn't say that the public is paying a ton of attention. I think people, you know, have come to basically expect the worst of Facebook and whether they care or not has kind of been priced into the market. Yeah, well, that would explain the share price still going up. Yeah, and also the literal market seems not to care very much. When what we're talking about here is, is the what the Wall Street Journal called the Facebook files, a set of leaked documents that kind of give a lot of insight into how Facebook has handled, among other things, content moderation. There are not brand new revelations in these documents. There's more, just much more deeply textured sense of the kind of trade-offs Facebook has been making. Mm-hmm. Including these cowing to regimes which I imagine that must be surprising to some of the audience. You know, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it was surprising to me. One of the real lessons of the last few years, I think, has been that, you know, the internet is, in fact, you know, a bunch of data on a set of servers that are located somewhere, that 
national governments have basically retaken power increasingly over over their internets for better and for worse. You've written about this age of mega leaks, starting with WikiLeaks and Edward Snowden's leaks and now the Panama Papers and Pandora Papers. But this whistleblower, Francis Haugen, has played this a bit differently. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, if you are a whistleblower, if you're somebody inside a government institution or inside a company with a bunch of fairly complex secrets, there is this tough question of what do you do? Like you can dump it all online, but I think we've seen that just a bunch of undifferentiated data can be spun, can be misinterpreted, can be you know, taken to mean whatever people want it to mean. And so I think a lot of whistleblowers, Edward Snowden first among them, have sought to go to kind of sophisticated, sympathetic journalists who can vouch for and interpret the documents. But then you have a situation in which only a few people have access to them. And, and I think what Haugen has tried to do here is get the best of both worlds in terms of first giving these documents to the Wall Street Journal with a long lead time. And there's a sense in which you know, there's this sort of artisanal boutique rollout, including this very flattering podcast featuring her, and then essentially opened kind of an information outlet ball in the suburbs in which lots and lots of journalists, again, pre-selected, but, you know, maybe 30 journalists for more than 15 outlets were able to kind of root around among all the stuff that the journal had essentially either already written about or turned down, generate another wave of stories. And I think her goal is to keep kind of broadening that circle. And she had these financial backers. Uh, Well, she initially did not. I mean, I think she did this, it seems very much on her own with the help of a nonprofit group called Whistleblower Aid. It's a pretty low profile kind of legally focused nonprofit. After the journal had begun publishing, you know, obviously a lot of people who are sympathetic to her kind of rallied to her side, including in particular some groups that are funded by Pierre Omajar, who's a billionaire who was one of the founders of eBay. Uh, and, and they've been, you know, helping her on the margins, I think paying for her travel and stuff like that, and for maybe her legal defense. One interesting thing that she told me was that she's not accepting any personal financial support or taking any money from anybody because she uh, invested in crypto at a good time and seems to be living in Puerto Rico on her crypto winnings. Did you do due diligence on her? Do you think the others did a good job of that? I think that the journal's conclusion, which I sort of think was the right call, was that she doesn't matter very much. And I think this is her own perspective, too. She delivered a huge cache of documents, most of which she doesn't really know much more about them than you were at. There were documents that she was able to copy from Facebook's very open internal systems, but almost entirely projects that she did not work on. I think her point of view is her motives don't really matter. She doesn't really matter in the story. She's an interesting kind of side story, but that ultimately people ought to look at the documents and take whatever they want from them and that they're free to kind of disagree with her interpretation of the documents. So the journalists inside the consortium have complained about being managed by her. Do you think that's fair? Nobody complained to me about that. If they have been complaining about it, I don't think she's particularly tried to control the story beyond you know, beyond her own story and beyond just putting the documents out in the first place. Just the fact that she first gave them to the journal and then obviously she didn't give them a heads up that she was going to a broader audience. You know, she she's dictating it. Yeah, the, ju- the, journal, the journal was a little bit unhappy that she did decide to kind of broaden that circle. But, you know, she'd also given them a dozen really amazing stories. So I don't think they have too many complaints. All right. Are there dangers do you think that journalists should be aware of in reporting these leaks? I do think that there's a situation in which the leaker sort of becomes your assignment editor, and it is worth trying to understand their motives. I do think you had these anonymous leakers, notably WikiLeaks, but also something in Auschwitz called DC Leaks that the US government at least believes was basically Russian intelligence. 
And they were, you know, essentially setting the news agenda for American journalists. And I do think that, I mean, if you think about the DNC hack and the WikiLeaks release of those in the end, the bigger story was that there was this incredible Russian intelligence operation. That was a bigger story than anything that was actually in the leaks, which weren't that interesting. Mm. Journalists need to be really careful about this stuff. It's complicated. It can't be the end of these leaks. I mean, just there must be other whistleblowers out there watching. And amazing what she was able to document. Yeah, I mean, it's gotten much easier. And actually, you know, working from home is a big part of this. But it's gotten much easier to digitally reproduce things. I think here she was taking photographs of her screen, basically. Well, I don't know how exactly she did it and, you know, whether Facebook's security might have noticed that this employee was looking at a whole lot of pages or what. I do think there's both an enormous amount of opportunity for people these days and also more and more surveillance of employees to try to deter them from doing this kind of thing. And then finally, I think the tech industry in particular has this very open culture where thousands or tens of thousands of people can see internal documents that in a lot of companies would be considered very sensitive. And I think that that is starting to close down. I think that you know these companies are starting to basically see the risk of this kind of leak as too great. We talked about it hasn't really impacted the share price, but it has. We've seen some Facebook self-regulation of abandoning this facial recognition technology that was causing so many problems. Is this approach that she's taken what needs to happen to actually cause change now that we've become so, so desensitized to the idea of Facebook and the damage it does? I'm not sure. I don't think these companies are going to be wished away. and They have huge reach and traction on the advertising industry, among other things, and on people's attention. I think the notion that Facebook is a monopoly is fading a bit. One of the interesting revelations from these leaks is how panicked Facebook is about TikTok. It sure doesn't feel like a monopoly on the inside. It feels like a company you know, whose central product, this blue Facebook app, is really threatened and they're making fairly kind of desperate decisions to try to keep it alive and keep it growing in an environment where these social networks can come and go, but they also just have an enormous amount of capital and incredible business and, and are, yeah, I think are not going anywhere. Congress looks like they're taking regulation much more seriously as a result of this or at the same time as this. You're not just a media observer, you were actually on the coalface with BuzzFeed as the founding editor-in-chief. Do you think regulation is likely now and, and what sort of regulation is most likely? The main sort of form of regulation that's essentially already in place is a tightening of antitrust practices in the U.S. And so I think Facebook did a lot of key growth through acquisitions through seeing potential competitors like Instagram and WhatsApp and buying them before they can threaten it. They're basically no longer able to do that. Regulators are not going to let them do that. I mean, I think you know the United States Congress is not particularly functional. It's unclear what, if any, action they'll take. Apple, in a strange way has become the central internet regulator. And I mean, obviously is also a competitor, but Apple's crackdown on certain kinds of tracking of advertising data mm. is a real threat to Facebook and has really impacted their business. And we saw in the leaks that they threatened to ban Instagram for being involved in selling of domestic servants in the Middle East. Yeah, that's right. Apple, by the way, is also sells advertising. And I think, you know, there, there are sort of competitive motives at play here as well. But I think that there are you know, a lot of different players in this ecosystem. I'm not sure the United States government is likely to be the first actor. I think you saw the Australian government mm. really push Facebook on news in a way that essentially spread back to the United States. Um, and I think the Europeans are also putting a lot of pressure on them. So we've heard a lot of talk about repeal of Section 230, which means the platforms would be responsible for what's published there. You don't think that's likely? 
it's not really clear to me why people want that. Like it does not accomplish the thing that I think some people want, which is to prevent content they don't like from going viral. And it also would essentially end the internet as we know it. I mean, I think that, you know, if Twitter had to pre-review every one of your tweets to make sure that you weren't libeling somebody, they would not tweet, it just wouldn't exist. And I, and I don't think that's even what the people who are calling for the repeal of it want. So, you know, I think what Frances Hogan, the Facebook leaker wants, and she has her own kind of peculiar set of politics, basically, but her point of view is that, you know, is that the way things spread algorithmically is the problem, not the question of what you post, but the question of how it spreads, Mm -hmm. which is totally independent. It has nothing to do with Section 230. I don't think there's a lot of call in the U.S. to say that you should not be able to write on the internet the words, Donald Trump really won the election. The question is, should companies then amplify that message? And what are the mechanisms through which it's amplified? And how is that monitored? I can imagine media houses would like to level the playing field on this one. I mean, in Australia, the courts have ruled that media houses are responsible for the comments posted on their Facebook pages. And the media would be an attractive outcome, I imagine. They are competitive industries. And I think often, particularly to the extent that Facebook's advertising business can be dented, the media industry hope is that that money comes back to the media. What about algorithm transparency? You know, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I think that a lot of these conversations that sound like they're about speech and censorship, the more interesting conversation is what is spreading inside these platforms and why, particularly when it's not that they're showing you things that your friends shared, but that they're showing you things that they are just sort of guessing that you're going to like. That's really a black box. That's, you know, in some sense, their secret sauce is proprietary and is something that they are very focused on keeping as, you know, as is, for instance, TikTok. But also that I think is the place where regulators and citizens have a lot of interest. Absolutely. And especially these issues of privacy and safety for children. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, in every political fight, when you can start saying, think about the children, it's a huge advantage. And there is this very disturbing internal research on the relationship with some young girls of Instagram to eating disorders. But this was Facebook's not peer reviewed, not particularly deep internal research. And I do think that there are some real questions about it. In particular, in at least in the United States, the issue of young women struggling with eating disorders around, you know, the images that were in magazines, for instance, is, is not a new issue. And, and I think this is sort of emblematic of a lot of the questions around Facebook, which is, would there be right-wing populism in the world without Facebook? Would girls have eating disorders without Facebook? Like, obviously, yes. And then the question is, what is the impact? Is it amplifying it? Or is it just the channel where this stuff is playing out? Or is it something? And then the answer has got to be some of both. Mm. But I think disentangling those things is really hard and important. Have you met Mark Zuckerberg? Yes. What's your take on What's motivating him, resisting making the changes or some of the changes that are being demanded? I mean, I don't know him well and don't have deep psychological insight. I mean, I do think he's someone who has ignored the haters through the years and from his point of view and ignored conventional wisdom and become one of the richest, most powerful men in the world by doing that. And he's just personally, totally, totally identified with this company. He controls the voting shares. The information, this publication asked him recently if he would consider stepping down, and he said no. There's no way to pressure him to because he totally controls the company. But this is the kind of situation in which, for instance, at Microsoft, a new CEO came in. And I think the fact that the company is so deeply identified with Zuckerberg and that he's irreplaceable sort of intensifies this criticism and I think means that it's unlikely to stop anytime soon. I've heard talk of him being 
punted upstairs to the president position. Do you think it's likely? Sure. I mean, it's his company and they could reshuffle the deck chairs, but I think there's no real question about who's in charge. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Ben. Thank you. Joining me now is Sasha Molitoris, a lecturer in law and media and my colleague at the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology. Welcome to the show, Sasha. Hi, Prue. Thanks for having me. So Ben Smith might be a bit sceptical about regulation happening in US Congress, but a lot of other people think this is the moment that it's going to happen. And it raises this puzzle of what happens with such an international organisation. I mean, so much of what's come out of the Facebook papers has been things that have been happening in places like the Philippines or Myanmar, uh, the Middle East, Africa. How does regulation in a US context play out across the world? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And and let me start by saying that I don't think regulation is the answer to all the ills that afflict us. You know, regulation um, has an important role to play, but it won't fix everything. But in this space, we certainly need more regulation because there's been so little. You know, digital platforms are largely unregulated. You know, and if we're talking about digital platforms vis-a-vis news media, You've just got this complete contrast where news media are very heavily regulated, particularly in Australia, um, and digital platforms are not. But to your question about the international context, that is a real difficulty when it comes to regulation. You were talking with Ben about Section 230. What impact does that have on Australia? Or if we're talking about something like privacy, which is an area that I've researched, you know, you've got in Australia a current law reform process going on into privacy law. Over in Europe, you've had a new privacy law since 2018, which is very effective to some extent, but not enforced enough. In the US, you've got talk about, let's bring in a federal law. You've got all these differences. To that, I would say, yes, there are these differences from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but that's okay. (laughs) We can have that. We can have an internet that is bound by different privacy laws in different countries, by different arrangements between digital platforms and news media in different countries, and it can work over time. We're going to work out how it can work, but um, we can do it. So if there were a repeal of 230, which I think a lot of people think is highly unlikely, and Ben said would actually just break the business model of the digital platforms, (laughs) if they found some way to make the digital platforms responsible for what's published on their platforms, how do you think that would play out in Australia? Well, I, I agree with Ben. Section 230, very unlikely that it will be repealed, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, I don't think there's that political will. I disagree that it would break the internet. I think that's hyperbole. The repeal of Section 230 would change things. Yes, it would make digital platforms like Twitter or Facebook have a degree of responsibility for what appears on their platforms. But I don't think it would mean the internet suddenly cracks in half and we can't use it anymore. A workable solution would be found. And if I can go a bit further with that point, I think digital platforms need to have some responsibility. Regulators need to impose some sort of responsibility on Twitter, on Facebook, on digital platforms for the content that appears on them. But I don't think that should be the same responsibilities that a publisher has. So this is the position that we've taken at the Centre for Media Transition, which we're still refining. And it's not unique to us. A lot of researchers agree with this. Let's think about digital platforms in some other category, maybe as distributors of news, as intermediaries, you know, in some other category. And that category will recognise that they play a crucial role in the information space and the news media space. 
and it will give them certain responsibilities and certain benefits as well. But yeah, they certainly can't and shouldn't go completely unregulated and unrecognised by the law in, in that important space. So what areas would you see them needing to be regulated? I mean, you know, incitement to violence or hate speech, That you know, what sort of areas? Absolutely. Um, look, there's a lot. There's a long list. I guess the starting point there is that all these fields are interconnected, you know, incitement to hate, misinformation, the abuse of privacy. There are deep connections between all of these areas which are not immediately obvious. So what would we regulate? I think there are a lot of things that need to be done. You were talking about algorithmic transparency with Ben. I think that's a really important place to start. Digital platforms just don't want any sort of algorithmic transparency. They don't want any regulation of algorithms. But I think that's where it gets really interesting and important. What sort of content is surfacing, is brought to the surface on people's news feeds on Facebook? How does Google search work in a more transparent way? Now, with that, I don't mean that Google or Facebook need to reveal exactly all the workings of their algorithms. That would be going too far. And it would also be in some ways meaningless. You know, we'd be looking at all sorts of data that regulators wouldn't understand, users wouldn't understand. But I think there is some degree of algorithmic oversight that is necessary so that we can understand how misinformation is circulating, what sort of misinformation is circulating, what sort of data is being used as as an input. Are there abuses of personal data happening? A lot of this goes back to questions of privacy and data and the sort of inputs that digital platforms are using to feed their algorithms, to come up with the recommendations that they make and the content that surfaces. So I really do think that some degree of algorithmic transparency and oversight is really important. But there's a whole lot of other things. You know, I mentioned privacy and data law. I think that area of reform is really important and really tricky. You know, in a sense, that's the source of a lot of these these issues that we get some sort of checks on how data is being shared between companies, how it's being sold, how it's being used in the background in ways that aren't obvious to users and ways that users haven't consented to, right? So there's regulation of data and privacy is really important. Ben mentioned antitrust. I think, you know, antitrust is a really important way to think about these issues as well. We need to think about whether any of these companies have too much power. Um, You know, there's the court case that's been initiated in the US by a dozen US states in that direction. And the ACCC also, in September, it released its report into ad tech. So antitrust is another regulatory mechanism that's really potentially powerful. And lastly, I'd mention the, the news media bargaining code, which gets much maligned, but I think actually is a really important piece of law that tries to strike some sort of deal, recognising that digital platforms get the benefits of news content and news media businesses are not getting what they deserve to get from digital platforms for the use of that content. So there are a number of ways of regulating. A number of these are in train at the moment. They're being developed, as Ben said, you know, in some cases with Australia leading the way because America might be wanting to wait and see what other jurisdictions do. This is all going on at the moment and uh, there's a lot that can be done. And quite frankly, We need to move in this way. It's high time that we had some good regulation passed to get a better public sphere. That's what we're talking about, you know, which ultimately then will give us a better democracy and a better society. You've talked about the fact that these regulators are actually working together. Is that unusual? As far as I understand, you know, antitrust law is certainly not my expertise, but as the ACCC engaged in its digital platforms inquiry, it was very explicit that it was talking to regulators overseas and it was seeing 
what actions they were taking, what had they done that had worked, what, what hadn't worked. Regulators in Europe, regulators in the US, they were all talking to each other. And I think that's a really good approach. You know, we started talking by acknowledging the international nature of the internet. And I think the only way this regulation can be successful, all these various bits of regulation, to be honest, is by taking notice of what's happening in different countries and then having something of a maybe not a united front from governments around the world but at least an aligned front so that they can work alongside each other to give us the sort of internet that we want that is a positive the best internet we can have or at least a much better internet than we than we currently have bringing this back to the media it's very clear that all of these issues are interconnected for the media business, for what the media can publish, from competition with digital platforms. I think the most visceral case for Australian media was the Vola case, which gave digital platforms immunity from defamation cases. Can you talk a bit about that and how a repeal of 230 might impact that? Yeah, look, I, I think I dodged your question earlier about what 230 would mean for Australia. So, so I'll answer both of these together. If 230 does get abolished, so that's Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, it won't have any direct impact for Australia. But there would be a flow-on impact. You know, the digital platforms are all housed in the US. Um, That's where they construct themselves and they abide by US law and that would flow onto Australia. The sort of platforms that we get in Australia would definitely be impacted by that. Now, in Australia, that VOLA judgment that you mentioned is a really significant judgment. So it's a defamation judgment that says that a news company is liable for in defamation for any defamatory comments made underneath that news article. And Facebook has no liability, for instance. Intuitively, it does set the bar pretty high for news media businesses, you know, and and I would argue it sets the bar too high. It makes news media businesses too open to, to defamation claims. And just this week, I was reading about some lawyers contacting some Facebook page administrators to remove certain posts because they were vulnerable to defamation. Defamation laws are definitely such that news media businesses are in a really risky situation. And we've seen CNN pull some of their news stories and I think their news content from Australia. So they're responding in that way. At the moment, there are reforms underway, but at the moment, news media businesses are in a bit of a a tricky spot here. We hear this news that Facebook has abandoned plans to use its facial recognition and deleted imprints, facial imprints across the platform. Can you talk a bit more about that? Absolutely. Look, obviously Facebook is on the back foot and they want to be seen to be acting in a whole bunch of these spaces to get ahead of regulation. And this to me is a part of that. They just want to be seen to be doing the right thing. I mean, this to me is the right thing to do. Whether Facebook are doing it for good motives of helping the world or whether it's actually a business decision, pure and simple, I'm not sure. Can you this explain the, a bit about what it what it actually meant for a Facebook user? Well, facial recognition is used you know, in, in simple terms for people to unlock their phone. It's been used in all sorts of other ways. There was a really big case, actually, that didn't get much press that was only finally decided earlier this year, and it led to a payout of about $650 million from Facebook to people in the US, in the state of Illinois in particular, for the use of facial recognition and the way that facial recognition led to people being tagged in photographs without those people ever consenting. Look, this facial recognition technology has, it's incredibly powerful. Your face gets stored on a server and then can be linked to footage many years later, Mm. you know, video footage or photos taken many years later. You know, think of how we can now go back using facial recognition technology and see where people were 
and you know use location sort of retrospectively to pinpoint where people were and what they were doing facial recognition is really powerful potentially really dangerous open to abuse you know we can think of all sorts of human rights abuses of identifying people that if we're talking about countries that are not democratic and that oppress human rights activists you can think of all sorts of unjust ways that facial recognition is used and we know also that facial recognition has some really inherent problems with bias you know the data sets that it's been trained on don't recognize people of color as well as white people don't recognize women as well as white as men and so on so all these biases have a, a tendency to, to perpetuate or exacerbate these inequities that we have already. Okay, so but back to the, the regulation point, I think Facebook here is doing the right thing. So it's responding by uh, shutting down its facial recognition system and deleting a billion face prints. I think that is a good thing for Facebook to do. It's the right thing for them to do. Um, and I think ultimately it's them getting ahead of this regulatory wave that they see coming, trying to get out in front by by doing the right thing. And crucially, it's in that data space that I mentioned, where data, to me, is really the source of a lot of these issues. It's kind of the first issue, because without the data, these companies can't operate. Right? That's what they use to operate. There's been an argument that they've been avoiding self-regulation because they didn't know what was coming. And they didn't want to do more than they had to, obviously. But do you think this will work? Will this actually mollify regulators? Possibly. I mean, we can't underestimate the power of these digital platforms. They're incredibly powerful. They're so, because they're so so profitable, right? They're so big and profitable. One of the fallacies that emerged through the news media bargaining process, and, and this line I've heard a few times, is that the Australian government bullied Facebook and Google. That's absurd. The Australian government exists to pass laws that it thinks are good laws, that are just laws, fair laws, right? And in this case, that was to, to fix an unfair value exchange. The bullies in that case were Google and Facebook. They behaved like classic bullies. Facebook actually took news off its platform for a week, right at the crunch time in February 2021. So one thing we can't underestimate here is the political clout and the lobbying power of these digital platforms who are very powerful. Apart from whether it's right or wrong, I think it's right. This facial recognition decision is a very strategic decision in the context of everything that's going on with regulators around the world. Um, and yes, I think in some cases it probably will mollify some regulators, but hopefully it doesn't because the regulators just need to look at the actual issues in front of them and address those by making some good, sensible, fair, powerful laws. The bottom line for me is that at the moment we just have an internet where there are things that could be so much better. You know, if we're talking about privacy abuses, if we're talking about misinformation, if we're talking about the types of news media that is shared and comes to the surface, if we're talking about the polarisation of audiences, you know, there are a whole lot of issues where we could be seeing a better internet. And that's what I would want to see. I wouldn't want to see any freedoms curtailed. It's not about impinging on the freedom of speech. It's about putting in place systems and mechanisms that we end up seeing an internet that doesn't damage democracy and damage society and brings proper content, uh, content such as good journalism, to the surface. It very much feels as if it's happened so fast with regulators and lawmakers who potentially aren't really across all of the issues and maybe not even using the social media platforms. And now it's become just so complicated. It is. It's really complicated. And that is, that is a big part of the challenge here. 
But just because something is really complicated and really hard doesn't mean we should just throw up our arms and give up. You know, I think we can definitely take really concrete steps to make the internet better. And by that, make the public sphere better, make democracy better. You know, we can do all these things. And, and some of the things that I've talked about, steps towards algorithmic transparency, better personal data protections, these sorts of things will help. Fantastic. All right. On that optimistic note, thanks again, Sasha. Thanks, Bru. And thanks for listening. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app. We'll be back next week with more, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Toby Hemmings, and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Prue Clark. Thanks for listening.